Another busy week in politics, and it's only going to get more interesting. Joining me this morning, Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sons, Vaughn Palmer. A little later in the show, Energy Minister Bill Bennett will join us to talk about the Site C Dam, and then we finish by talking to an expert in the Westminster system, Carleton Associate Professor Philip Legacy. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics for Kamloops Computer Center. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome. Another beautiful morning here in Kamloops. And lots going on in the provincial political scene, so let's uh, just dive in. Joining me on the line, Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning, Shane. By the way, uh, just so our listeners know, no Rob Shaw today. He apparently heard there was something called a hung parliament in England, so he's uh, (laughs) headed to London to look into the whole situation. Uh, Okay, guys, uh, legislature will sit June 22nd. Uh, MLAs were sworn in this week. That gave you both a chance to kind of uh, see and talk to everybody as they got back to the legislature. Uh, Keith, anything there? Did you hear or see anything that firms up how this whole thing might shake out? It was very interesting, Shane. In the morning, the Liberals were sworn in, and you could have heard a pin drop as they walked into the, the chamber. Uh, through the Golden Gates, were all there with the cameras and lined up, and nobody said anything. There was no no smiles. Uh, contrast to 2013, where they were practically high fiving each other with their unexpected victory. This was a very subdued bunch as they walked in and got sworn in. Then fast forward to the afternoon, just uh, literally a couple hours later, the NDP's turn. Talk about a celebration, festive atmosphere. There was a, a, a piano player and a singer singing All You Need Is Love, the old Beatles song, as the MLAs walked in. Uh, big cheers, huge crowd. I'd say four times as many people and guests as were for the BC Liberals. And every time an MLA was name was read out, huge cheers. Uh, so, yeah, the difference couldn't be more noticeable between the two and spoke volumes of where this place is headed as the NDP firmly expects to uh, coast into being government within a matter of weeks, and the Liberals seem to know what their fate is. All right, over to you, Vaughn. What did, what did you see or hear? Well, I was only there for part of the day, but I did run into Premier Christy Clark in Vancouver last night. She and a bunch of her friends were going off to see Wonder Woman. Uh, <laughs> she said it was a great movie, and uh, maybe it uh, picked up her spirits a bit, but uh, no question the Liberals uh, see the writing on the wall and are resigned to their fate pretty well. Uh, the one thing I would say, Shane, about the upbeat move, mood among the New Democrats is um, they still haven't figured out really, how they're going to make this thing work in the House. Mm. The, the, the Westminster system is designed for majority governments, and 44 to 43 is as razor's edge as it gets. So they're still talking about changing the rules of the House. They're still talking about changing the way the Speaker operates. And they can be as optimistic as they like. I still wonder how they're going to make this thing work. And I see you've got Philip Lagasse on the show later, Shane, and I've been corresponding with him on Twitter from time to time, and he seems to be the expert in Canada on uh, on the Westminster model. And it'll be interesting to get his take on the potential and perhaps inevitable politicization and partisanship uh, making of the Speaker's office that will occur under the BC or under the NDP Green Alliance where the speaker will have to vote with the government mm. over and over and over again it's done by convention but usually only every now and then it's it's a rare occurrence and this is going to have to be the new normal and the other thing is you know what what his take is on a, a government a, sort of an alliance of two parties with with a bare the barest of majorities of all arbitrarily changing the rules of the legislature, which is what the what Andrew Weaver, the Green Party, suggested they're going to do, change what's called the standing orders 
to get around the fact that the speaker's not in the committee stage of legislation, which would further protect their very precarious majority. Um, you know, technically it's possible, but ethically and uh, from that past, uh, standpoint, I'm not sure it's it's as as supportable as uh, they're making it out to be. Yeah, it may not be waters that you want to go or make that change at all, Vaughn. Yes, and I remember, too, that the Democrats and the Greens together have a very, very ambitious uh, agenda. After all, you've got 17, 16 years of pent-up expectations that they want to implement. Budgets, uh, changes in regulation, changes in legislation, all understandable, but... To do that kind of ambitious agenda, even with a big, comfortable majority, is not easy. You have to, there's debate, there's time, there's drafting legislation, there's making budgets work. And this group is proposing to do it with, as we say, the most precarious majority possible. So I still think, as I said, with the best of intentions, it's going to be very difficult to make this work. Obviously, I think Everyone should give it a chance and watch, and we're going to be fascinated, I think, by what comes forward, because we'll be watching sort of not just the usual budgets and legislation, but I think, Shane, they're going to have to do a lot of it by cabinet orders, which you just sign in the cabinet room. We're going to be studying the orders that come out from cabinet and from ministers very carefully, because I think a lot of what they want to do, they will have to do that way. And, you know, I've been talking to the table officers at the ledge. We are under the microscope uh, throughout the entire British Commonwealth. Uh, Every country, all the clerks, all the speakers, all the constitutional experts are looking at B.C. right now to see what happens. This is an unprecedented situation. Uh, So everyone from Kenya to, uh, you know, pick pick a British Commonwealth... Uh, country are all looking here. The clerk's office is getting besieged with phone calls, international phone calls from people saying, "What what's going on out there? What are you going to do? Uh, the decisions that are made here are going to potentially have an impact on uh, on other British Commonwealth governments. I mean, even Elizabeth May and uh, or um, uh, Prime Minister May in, um, in uh, Great Britain, now with the minority government, uh, is also going to be looking. How's the Commons will be looking at the BC situation to see what decisions are made and what the precedents are. Oh, it's going to be fun. Uh, the back to the speaker position real quickly because I I don't think John Horgan said a whole lot new yesterday when he was talking, uh, but I was interested to hear uh, the government house leader Mike DeYoung, who kind of uh, as you and I were co- sort of corresponding on email last night, Keith, opening the door uh, to the Liberals appointing a speaker. Even though uh, Todd Stone told us here in Kamloops yesterday that all forty three uh, Liberal MLAs had written the clerk to say we're not standing for the job. So how does this play out? Well, he's uh, Young yesterday appeared in, to us at a news conference with Premier Christie Clark, and he took all the sort of procedural questions. And he said, "There is a rule, as he called it. He framed it as a rule that the government is the is the side that puts up a speaker, and suggested they would follow that." But he also said at the same time, "There are exceptions to that." Uh, so we're so sort of left with uh, reading the tea leaves here. It does sound like they will put up a speaker to begin the parliament. Uh, to allow the throne speech to be read and for a vote to take place, presumably in the days ahead. Uh, we're not sure they're going to go the full t- uh, time allotment for the debate, but uh, he seemed to indicate the Liberals would put up the speaker, which gets us over the first hurdle to actually allow the Parliament to open. I think the Liberals realize that if they don't put up a speaker and the NDP doesn't put up a speaker, this that deadlock would show the lieutenant governor there's no stability in the House and she may well call another election. And it may be the Liberals that pay a heavier price for that 
uh, unpopular re-election call than uh, than the NDP. But uh, that speaker, uh, once the vote is uh, is uh, uh, taken and the government falls, will resign, and then it'll be up to the BC NDP and the Greens to produce their own speaker. Vaughn, do you think that that, that would then fall to Linda Reid then, or no? No, I don't think so. I think the Liberals will probably put somebody else up uh, other than Reid. Uh, but, you know, they may put up Reid. But I agree with Keith. The The likely scenario is the Liberals will take what is, after all, the government's responsibility most times, which is to put up a speaker. They'll put somebody up, and that uh, person will serve briefly uh, until the government falls, as we expect. And that person will then resign as the Premier resigns and leave it the onus to the NDP to come up with their own speaker. They NDP will become the government. They'll have to come up with a speaker. There's an absurd idea out there that the Liberals have some kind of an obligation to supply a speaker to the NDP. Um, I don't see that at all. It's the duty of the opposition to oppose. The Liberals will become the opposition. I don't see it's their job to provide a speaker The Greens and the NDP, Shane, knew very well when they went into this arrangement that they were taking on a very precarious balance in the House. They knew they were going to have to deal with the Speaker issue. They were talking before they signed the agreement about changing the rules in the House to make it easier. So they went into this eyes wide open, and for some NDP supporters now to be out there suggesting that somehow or other the Liberals have to bail them out (laughs) by coming up with a speaker for them, I just don't see it at all. I think the Liberals shouldn't sabotage things in... While they're in charge, that's why I think they should come up with a speaker for the short session. But the idea that they then have some obligation to the NDP, I just don't see that at all. And and DeYoung made that point without actually saying that in in our exchange yesterday, where he said, you know, they would follow the rule and he would expect other uh, subsequent governments to follow the same rule that the government provides the speaker and no one else. Yeah. Okay. uh, We got to take a quick break here. Uh, before we get to the next segment, uh, some more with Keith and Vaughn on Inside Politics right here on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Uh, guys, in the provincial political scene, letter writing has become pretty <laughs> vogue over the last few weeks. Uh, it caught my ear among all the sites, see letters flying around, uh, and Andrew Weaver was talking to Simi Sarah on CKNW this week, and uh, he noted the one that the that was released by the Boons up north in the Site C situation that started the whole thing off uh, was an administrative error, which would mark the second one by the NDP uh, in the last week or so. Vaughn? Yes. So remember that Weaver and Horgan signed an agreement where they promised no surprises and that Weaver would be consulted on everything. And yet, you're quite right, Weaver has mentioned on a couple of radio interviews in the last few days that he wasn't consulted and didn't know uh, the full details of Horgan's correspondence with Premier or with BC Hydro on Site C. And of course, Site C is a central issue for Weaver. He wants it killed. So, uh, you know, the partnership is getting off to a bumpy start, of course. Uh, Transitions are bumpy, and we're going to make it, you know, give the NDP some slack to get their office up and running and get their correspondence files in order, but uh, there's been a couple of little bumps already on that. And of course, in Premier Christy Clark's response, Keith, uh, she, I think under the guise of cooperation and asking for advice, really threw down a gauntlet on Site C to John Horgan. 
Yeah, she's trying to frame it as I'm just reaching out to collaborate with these guys when she was trying to put Horgan on the spot, which was, uh, you know, asking some very pointed questions. Should should there be um, a, t- a tools down order uh, directed by Hydro or to, to Hydro for uh, stopping all work at Site C? Uh, Horgan is is walking a very delicate um, line here, where on the one hand he wants construction to continue. On the other hand, he doesn't want any new contracts signed. And then on the other hand, he wants the whole thing reviewed to uh, to the Utilities Commission, which is Vaughn wrote a couple of days ago that his six-week time frame for, for this is, seems ludicrous for the Utilities Commission to get through all the work and look at such a vast, huge, complex project and assess it in just six weeks seems absurd. So he's in a, he's in a spot, a tight spot here, and I think Clark is artfully trying to squeeze him and make him make pointed public positions when he doesn't want to. Vaughn, you've written a lot about this over the last few days, and one of the uh, issues I've, I've read about is whether the BC even has the administrative resources anymore to do something like that in an expedited time frame. Yeah, I mean, look, the BC Utilities Commission did, in fact, review Site C a generation ago in 1981. It took two and a half years to conduct a proper review, and their conclusion at the end of it was that Hydro didn't need the project and shouldn't go ahead. Uh, that was a valid and uh, decision for the time, but the idea that they're going to be able to do some sort of rush job in six weeks on this and give us a definitive answer, I just don't get it. I, they're saying, oh, well, they could have a few extra weeks. They could go three months altogether. But basically, Horgan wants answers within six weeks, and I just say I don't think you can do that. Now, having said that, I think that this eviction that goes to ahead on June the 30th, mm-hmm. uh, that should be put off for at least a month. If they put it off to July 30th, and I mean the liberals do that, the, the cabinet or the premier or the board of directors orders Hydro to put that off for a month, then Horgan will be premier probably, we assume, and Horgan can then decide what he wants to do with that. I think it is politically absurd to have a big, high-profile eviction going on at the end of this month when, as we all know, there will be a transition in a matter of days to a new premier. Uh, Hydro tried to persuade us this week that it can't be put off anymore. I've got a lot of time for some of the people at Hydro, Shame, but they didn't persuade me that they can't find another month's worth of slack in the schedule, and politically, I just think they should do that. Yeah, and I think that's something we're going to toss at Bill Bennett, uh, who's still the minister responsible uh, in the next segment. Uh, but Keith, on the on the dam, I mean, where do we go from here? It's it's the Liberals are already trying to push it to the point of no return. Is there any feasible way this thing could be wound down if that's what ends up going? Well, I visited Site C, the Site C site uh, in the election campaign, and it's. You know whether you're for or against it, it's a breathtaking project. I mean, it's massive, and I just don't see how you dial this back. I mean, we're talking—they've created practically an entire town at uh, Site C. There are multi-buildings. There's tw- more than 2,000 workers, about 2,200 workers on site. Uh, there are First Nations working there locally. It's a huge economic generator in the region. Uh, the arguments—I uh, I still point to. Uh, I think what could be a pivotal moment was an op-ed piece that appeared in the Vancouver Sun a few months ago before the election by Marvin Schaefer, a noted energy critic uh, of the BC Liberals, SFU prof, uh, who wrote a piece saying he'd originally been uh, against Site C, but, you know, we're so far into the game now, you might as well build it, because eventually 
Not right now, maybe not even when the dam's up and running, but eventually we will require the power that comes from the Site C dam. It's inevitable that we will need the power. And since we were already so heavily invested in it, we might as well finish the job. And I, again, the point of no return, I think, is is been reached. I've long thought John Horgan, who I remember interviewing him a number of years ago, was a firm supporter of Site C, as Andrew Weaver was a few years ago. Yep. Uh, won't return to that position and is using the referral to the Utilities Commission almost as cover to show his critics, well, I did what I had to do. I, you know, I did everything I could to stop it, but they said, you know, we might as well go ahead with it. And I think that's the position he's hoping secretly, without telling anybody, that he wants the Utilities Commission to come back with, which is might as well keep going. Okay. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about sightseeing in the next segment, and we're close to the bottom of the hour. I had a quick question I want to get in here from Daniel Fontaine, who, who's desperate to know. Uh, maybe you guys can answer this real quick. Uh, he wants to know if John Horgan does form government, how will question period work for the Greens? Would they ask the government and quiz the government like they would normally or no? Yeah, I think the Greens, the answer to that is I think the Greens will want to be able to ask questions in question period. They they have reserved the right, in fact, to speak against things that the New Democrats do that they don't agree with. They've agreed to support budgets, but they've also agreed to speak against. So I think Weaver will be trying to maintain an independent uh, position in the House, and as much independence from the NDP as he can, he will want to use question period for those purposes. Yeah, he's going to get more questions than he had last the last few years, because there's three members, and he's going to be allotted more time. And not only will he ask questions of the government, I wouldn't be surprised if the NDP government actually loses votes on bills and things from time to time that are not deemed to be confidence motions. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be some embarrassment to the NDP when the Greens actually vote against them, which I think will happen. Okay. Uh, let's uh, take a break to the bottom of the hour. On the other side, Energy Minister Bill Bennett joins us to answer all our damn questions. More with Keith Vaughn and Bill after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and uh, Keith Baldry, and now we're joined on the line by Energy Minister Bill Bennett. Bill, welcome. Good morning. You know, you didn't have to do this. You're not a politician technically anymore. You know that, right? No, I didn't have to do it, and, and I didn't have any plans to be involved, you know, publicly um, with all this stuff. But it, it's too much to take to okay. watch a good project like Sightsee, a project that is absolutely needed uh, by this province, um, be put at risk um, by what's going on in in Victoria. Um, I, I just, I, you know, I think Mr. Weaver ought to... Um, take a hard look uh, at who he's in bed with and ask himself if he really thinks that the head of the NDP is going to cancel a project that currently employs 2,200, you know, highly skilled, highly paid unionized workers, 80% of of whom are from BC. All right. uh, I know you're here to answer our questions. So why don't we do that uh, right now? Vaughn, you want to lead us off? Bill, I ask one question about it, which is the evictions that are set for June the 30th, right in the middle of what will be transitioned from one government to another. I heard Hydro's briefing on it this week. I have a lot of time for the people at Hydro, but I still think politically they ought to find another month of leeway somehow and put off those evictions for a month so that it becomes something that the next government deals with, not this government. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm the 
the, the person who signed the expropriation orders. Uh, so um, I, you know, I can't imagine what it's been like uh, for the Boone family or, or the other um, owner of the, the property where the tenants are um, to be facing this. But on the other hand, you know, government is elected to make decisions that are in the best interest of the majority of people. And, and we, we absolutely believe that's what we are doing with Site C. Um, I think the answer to your question is that someone has to take responsibility for the risk of spending an additional $600 million or more of ratepayer money if there is additional delay. We, we did uh, delay this twice uh, for the boons, um, as, as you know. Um, a third delay is, is quite likely going to mean we're going to miss the, uh, the, the low water window in September of 2019. And the next alternative to, to September 2019 is September 2020. So it is a one-year uh, delay to be able to divert that river. Uh, somebody has to take the responsibility for the risk of that $600 million of extra ratepayer money. And, and, you know, to uh, Premier Clark's credit, she has asked Horgan and Weaver to say, yes, that's what they want to do. They'll take that responsibility, put it in writing, and they have so far refused to do that. But, Bill, wouldn't it be unfortunate if you kick these people out of their house, NDP government takes over, and I know you don't want to see the, the, the dam stop, uh, but then suddenly this whole thing goes and these guys get to go back home, and, and all of that was for naught. Well, <laughs> that is a that would be an unfortunate circumstance. But I actually do not believe for one second uh, that John Horgan has any intention of canceling this project. He had to find a way to make a deal with Andrew Weaver, and the way he made the deal was he promised a speedy review um, of the project. Um, you know, it has taken um, up until this point in time the BCUC on average, eight and a half months uh, to review projects. This is a lot bigger project than the BCUC has ever reviewed uh, before. Uh, so it's going to take at least eight and a half months. I think it probably would take longer than that. So he's made a promise to Mr. Weaver uh, that Horgan has that you can review this thing, you know, in, in three months. It's it's not feasible. And, and I know John Horgan, and I, I think he's smart enough and experienced enough uh, to know that it's it's just not possible to get a, a good review, and I don't believe he has any intention of canceling the project. All right, Keith, let's get you in here. Bill, the um, Hydro's presentation to us pointed out the cost of canceling the project would include things like uh, reclamation costs associated with the with the site, uh, local uh, uh, agreements, revenue agreements with local communities, First Nations revenue agreements, uh, a line, a list of line items, but they did not put a dollar figure on the cost of canceling Site C. Do you have any idea how much we're talking about, over and above just uh, the contractual obligations of what what it's going to take potentially costing taxpayers to shut this thing down? Well, we I never asked for that number um, as minister because I had no interest in in thinking about uh, canceling a project that we absolutely believe is necessary. Um, the BC Hydro did seven and a half years of due diligence on this thing before it even came to uh, uh, to, to my ministry. We then did a, another year of due diligence on it, um, and, and I can tell you, I very very sincerely, um, that there was zero political pressure um, on me as a minister of energy to take a recommendation to cabinet that we should go ahead with this project. I can tell you, without divulging you know any any specific. Uh, conversations I had, I can tell you that there was no pressure 
uh, from uh, Christy Clark uh, to me or anybody else in my ministry uh, to go ahead with this this project. This this is not the the circumstance that I have seen you know uh, articulated in, in newspaper articles uh, that you know the premier just wanted this as a, as a vanity project. That's ridiculous. In fact, she was very cautious um, about going ahead with this, and we 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 did our due diligence on this thing. Yeah, I mean, right now there's about north of $4 billion spent or committed on the project. When you throw in reclamation costs and, and revenue agreements, do you think that's another billion dollars or so? Well, you, yeah, I mean, you've you got pretty close to $2 billion. I think it's $1.75 that's, that's spent, and you've got you know at least another $2 billion uh, committed in in contracts and and you know somebody i think weaver or somebody or horgan suggested you know well we i think it was horgan you know let's not enter into any more contracts that don't have escape clauses well if you're a a business that's being asked to bid on a job that's multiple hundreds of millions of dollars um and and you know that the you know the owner of the project could just cancel the the whole thing you know six months down the line are you are you going a are you going to actually bid on that that contract and B, if you are going to bet on it, you're probably going to double the price. It's just insane the kind of the conversations that are taking place. I don't know what the number is, um, but it's a hell of a lot of money, and it's ridiculous that we're even having that discussion. What about the argument that there's cheaper alternative uh, uh, energy sources that could be looked into, wind and thermal and those types of things? You know, we we took um, a little over a year uh, to work with the Clean Energy Association. On that, they went out and hired a very expensive consultant from the U.S. and and we rolled that around every which way we could to to see if there if there was um, a different way to do this. Um, but you know, there there's a reason why Quebec, Manitoba, and BC have the least expensive electricity and. In Canada, and some of the least least expensive uh, expensive electricity, you know, anywhere in the world, is because we rely on large hydroelectric projects. These these dams are expensive to build, but they last a hundred years. And when you amortize the cost over that period of time, you end up with with very cheap power. Yes, a little expensive uh, at the front end, the first four or five years, uh, but these things last for decades and decades, and it's clean power. Site C will actually put us in a position in the province where we can then go out and buy more intermittent electricity like wind and solar and run of the river because we'll have this big dam with all the water behind it like a big battery sitting there that can fill in the gaps for when electricity is not available from these other intermittent technologies. Bill, uh, if you could wind the clock back, and I know it was under Premier Gordon Campbell, but uh, should this thing have gone to the BC Utilities Commission? Because over the years, that seems to be the one thing that's left a bad taste in everyone's mouth and has come back to haunt you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wasn't energy minister at the time. I wasn't part of, of the discussion that led to the decision to um, exclude Site C um, in the Clean Energy Act. Um, and, you know, easy answer, I guess, would be, you know, may- maybe that's what they should have done um, at the time. Uh, what I can tell you, um, again, I-, I have to be careful not to um, break any-, any-, any rules of confidentiality. Um, I can tell you that I personally had discussions um, with senior people um, at the BCUC, not the people who are there today, but people who previously there um and they were scared to death of of the site c project and having responsibility to uh to do the kind of work that would be would be necessary the kind of work that that bc hydro and its independent 
um, assessors did. I mean, Hydro had um, had audit firms uh, looking at this. Hydro had a a committee of uh, independent um, international construction experts. Uh, you know, Weaver and, and Horgan say there's been no independent assessment of this project. Not not so. Uh, there has been so. You know, I don't know. It's it's hypothetical. I don't know whether it would have been better for the project uh, to have subjected it to um, you know a, a, the BCUC, but it certainly, from a political perspective, would have avoided some of this. All right, Vaughn. Uh, Bill uh, John Horgan has laid out probably about a dozen things in interviews and in statements that he wants to know in the way of answers from the BC Utilities Commission, and he says he wants preliminary answers on this within six weeks. How doable do you think that is? Well, I'm not going to speak for the BCUC, um, but in my experience, um, it will take you know take a minimum of six weeks for hydro and and the BCUC to sort out what information the BCUC actually needs. I, I think, you know, most people don't ever get that close to a, a $9 billion construction project and, and, and therefore quite understandably don't have a, a, a great appreciation of just how complex and how, how much information is involved uh, with a project like that. And, and so I think that the BCUC and Hydro would have to would sit down and, and really take I would think several weeks to sort out exactly what it is that the BCUC uh, needs to have. Um, as far as getting any sort of a reliable um, opinion from the BCUC, um, you're looking at I would say anywhere from eight and a half months to you know to to a year or even better than a year. And and I you know John Horgan used to work uh, for the NDP Energy Minister when they were in power in the 90s and I, I i know john well enough to know he's a, you know he's an intelligent guy with experience i don't think for a moment that he believes that you're going to get a good answer of the bcuc in three months and i don't think he has any intention of uh, canceling the project is it your expectation that uh, if bcuc does get handed this thing that they will they should and, and must go to the site itself rather than just look at paperwork that they have to visit the actual physical site of what's going on there to, to get a true sense of uh, the immensity of this? Oh, of course they will. Um, and and I, I don't know how many of you on the phone have, have been to the site. I know Mr. Palmer's been there, and I, I think Mr. Balgan maybe has been there. Been there. Um, it's, yeah. it's huge. I mean, you, it's absolutely huge. There are literally thousands of pieces of construction equipment, equipment uh, moving around that site. You've got multiple contractors and, and subcontractors you've got multiple projects within the large uh project um, all happening um and you know to figure out what it's going to cost to shut it down um it will t- i think that's a that's a six-month uh project but that you know the bcuc would as- presumably uh be charged with uh first of all assessing you know is it is it needed um and that's that's a, an interesting uh job uh, for them. I think when WAC Bennett had all the large hydro facilities built in in the province uh, during his day, I'm sure that he didn't know that 100% of the electricity available on the day of commissioning uh, was was going to be sold. You know, you don't you don't know that for absolute certain. Uh, you do your best to forecast uh, demand, and hydro's got a, a good reputation internationally for being good at forecasting. You do your best to forecast. Uh, you build the project on a, on a timing that makes uh, the most sense, 
Um, you may not have a use for absolutely every megawatt that you've got available to you on, on the first day. Uh, but I think within a, a very few years, um, they would be using all of the electricity. And, you know, and, and if our economy grows and our population that continues to grow the way it, it has been growing, um, they'll need that electricity when it's ready. All right. We're, uh, we're out of time. But, Bill, I want to say thanks for coming on and, and answering our questions. Appreciate that. Thank you, Bill. Future. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> all right, uh, that's Bill Bennett. Uh, Keith Vaughn, my thanks to both of you as well for your insight and, and all you provide when you're on the show. I always appreciate that as well. I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye, Shane. There we go. There's Keith Baldry, there's Vaughn Palmer, and Energy Minister Bill Bennett. We're going to take a quick break, and on the other side, Philip Lagasse, an expert when it comes to the Westminster system. We'll talk to him on the other side of the break here on Inside Politics. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back, and uh, thank you for tuning in and giving us a listen. We always appreciate that. Uh, we're going to talk about the ins and outs of the Westminster system next. Uh, we got on the phone right now Carleton University Public and International Affairs Associate Professor Philip Lagasse. Philip, welcome. Hi. Uh, well, you're a busy man these days. Uh, there seems to be a renewed interest in the Westminster system, which I suppose is a good thing. Yeah, I'd have to agree. It's uh, always good for us to know how our system of government works. Uh, two fronts here. I'm maybe going to start with what's going on in the UK, because, uh, and I'll, I'll leave it up to you to draw any correlations here, but uh, it's an interesting one uh, coming off of the BC vote and now seeing what's going on in the United Kingdom. Uh, is there anything, is parallels, correlations there in your opinion? Oh, uh, sure. I mean, it's important to realize that uh, Theresa May remains PM uh, in spite of the results. Um, and uh, what we saw today, actually, she named some of her core cabinet ministers are the same from last uh, the, the prior to the election, and effectively going with continuity. And she's going to be facing a particularly precarious parliamentary situation, as any government that uh, that will attempt to govern in, in BC is going to face over the next few months. But in BC, it's particularly precarious. I mean, uh, Theresa May has got much more of an edge uh, over what's going on here with just a single seat in play, which which I imagine adds a bit of an interesting dimension. Yeah, it's just we have to realize that uh, the advantage that we have over here in Canada, at least the political leaders have, is that parties are pretty disciplined here, uh, whereas in the UK, they have uh, far greater backbench independence. So while Theresa May may look like she has a greater margin uh, closer to a majority, uh, by Britain going in with uh, with her uh, the the second party that she's working with, the reality is that she's going to have a pretty tough time keeping her caucus in line, particularly uh, a lot of her backbenchers that are going to disagree with her on particular issues. Whereas in the BC case, um, most of the time the members are going to vote alongside with their party leaders. Now, uh, Keith Baldry, we were talking to earlier in the show, uh, made the comment that BC right now is under the microscope among all Commonwealth to see how things proceed. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think there's something to be said for the fact that this is uh, challenging some basic assumptions we have, particularly in the Canadian context, about um, how governments are formed and how they're challenged and what the role of the, the premier is, what the uh, how speakers are selected, and a number of customs that we've uh, we've come to adopt. Uh, and it's also testing the boundaries of how far we can stretch conventions in particular cases. 
Speaking of the speaker, which is getting a ton of attention, uh, we're still trying to deal with that. We're, we've got the legislature sitting here June 22nd. Uh, there's a lot of question marks about how that will proceed. Uh, one of the, the common ones has the Liberals being the government of the day, uh, appointing a speaker who would then resign potentially uh, once the government gets pulled down by the, uh, the NDP Green Alliance on the throne speech. Is that against convention? No, that wouldn't be. That would actually be more in keeping with custom that... Uh, Let's make the difference here between custom and convention. So typically, by, it's customary for the governing party to put one of its own as a speaker. Um, that's not convention, though. It's just a custom that we tend to, to, to adhere to. Um, and this is where it gets a little bit more complicated. So the liberals might name one of their own as a speaker, but there's no reason why that individual, why that MLA would need to step down when they're defeated. And I and a few others have argued that it would be in everybody's interest if uh, that liberal speaker simply stayed on to bring some degree of stability to the legislature thereafter. But as you say, chances are that uh, after the government is defeated um, on a no-confidence vote, that liberal speaker will probably resign. I'm curious to get your take on on the role of the speaker. I mean, there's a lot of cards yet to be played, but uh, let's assume it goes as we think it will, uh, and John Horgan becomes premier with the barest of majorities with uh, with a one seat advantage. Of course, he then has to pull a speaker out somehow. Uh, what would your opinion be of the speaker who is by designation sort of the referee of the house becoming more politicized and having to actually vote as an active member to keep the government alive? Well, it's it's stretching convention to really it's it's very limit. Uh, generally speaking, the speaker is only supposed to vote when there's a tie, so that's going to be happening happening regularly, uh, and therefore the speaker will regularly vote in favor of the government. Uh, but generally, there are other conventions to the effect that the speaker should either try and keep debate going, or not make votes that that are fairly critical uh, for major policy change. And yet, in this case. Uh, the speaker will have to do so. Uh, similarly, uh, if for whatever reasons the liberals don't put up uh, a speaker when they test confidence, then we would be stuck in a very odd situation of having a speaker cast a vote of, in favor of non-confidence in the government to bring the government down. And that would be a really some would argue, breaking convention. Now, what about the idea of sort of tweaking or changing the rules that govern how the Speaker works, something raised by uh, the Green Party leader here, Andrew Weaver, in order to kind of make the office uh, a little more, I don't know what the word is, flexible to work with sort of this government situation? Is, is that an advisable move, in your opinion? Well, I, look, that's the only real way they can make the legislature function. So we're faced with a trade-off here. Do do the people of BC want a legislature that that works for the next little while, or do they believe that an independent speaker uh, is the most important thing? And really, it's a trade-off between values here. What's the most important thing? Do they want a uh, the conventions around the speakership to be stretched? Uh, for the next little while, given the situation in the legislature. And it's part of the reason why these are conventions around the speaker. It's part of the reason why they're not codified to allow for a certain degree of flexibility. Um, and it's really the only way that you can have the legislature function. If, on the other hand, uh, you believe that the, uh, the impartiality of the speaker is sacrosanct, then you should be hoping there's another election. <laughs> Which, uh, in your opinion, uh, what do you think is the, is the timeline on, on that happening? 
Well, I just think it'll happen relatively quickly anyway, uh, that there probably will be another election. And frankly, uh, I don't know. We, we don't have any evidence that another election would not produce a pretty similar result, if not the same result. And so we might be stuck with the same question around the speakership anyway. So as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, the, the, there's a reason that the conventions around the speakership are conventions so that they can have some flexibility to deal with uh, circumstances that, that are rare. And I don't think that there would be any permanent changes brought to the speakership uh, if in this particular legislature that office is allowed to become slightly more partisan. All right. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to get a quick question in here. Uh, you wrote a blog, The Top Five Myths About the Queen and the UK Constitution, noting that the Queen's not, in fact, a citizen of the UK or Canada, despite being a monarch in one and the head of state in the other. Uh, and maybe this is a stupid question, but does she not hold a passport or no? No, she does not hold a passport. She, uh, in in both cases, if you look at your Canadian passport, it's issued in the name of the Queen, so she doesn't need a passport because she's the authority that issues passports. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. Obviously watching a little bit too much Crown on Netflix. Uh, Philip, thank you for your insight. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks. There we go. Well, there's uh, Carlton Associate Professor Philip Lagasse, an expert in the Westminster system. Always fascinating stuff, and it's going to play out uh, in a continued fascinating way. We'll see you here, here next week here on uh, Inside Politics on NL. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL. 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.